Today's episode is brought to you in part by our friends at Lagos Bible Software. Lagos combines digital books with intelligent software to help you study the Bible more deeply. And right now, new users of Lagos Bible Software can get started with Lagos 9 Fundamentals at 50% off. Visit lagos.com slash distillingtheology to learn more. You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. Distilling Theology. Welcome back to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. I'm your co-host, Blake Courtright, and I'm joined as always by the Baptistic brochacho, Justin Van Riper. Uh, How's it going, man? It's going. It has been uh, another... (laughs) I feel like I'm starting to say this every week. It has been a week, uh, but it has been good. Uh, glory to God! I'm still here and uh, still kicking. So yeah, I'm I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm good, man. It, it's it was a really wild day today. Uh, work was kind of this thing, and then this, 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 and it was all over and scattered. So this is this is exciting. I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. Um, last year we did a series that ended up being seven episodes talking about the doctrine of God in various facets, three of which just on the Trinity, um, one on inseparable operations and one on impassibility. And the year before that, also in the springtime, we did three episodes, parts one, two, and three, the, the introduction to to the doctrine of God. And so now we're back because apparently this is what we do every spring. Yeah. And a few weeks <laughs> yeah. ago, we talked with uh, Dr. Matthew Barrett about simplicity and the doctrine of the Trinity in his really wonderful, like accessible book, Simply Trinity. But tonight, uh, we're thrilled to have another esteemed guest on to discuss classical Christian theism, divine simplicity. Uh, but before we do, let's jump into a quick tasting. Uh, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? Yeah, um, I'm excited. We're going to be drinking Talisker Distillers Edition. Bro. And um, it smells wonderful. Not going to lie. Yo, it it is phenomenal my brother got me this uh, as a gift for christmas so thank you to brad for for this really stellar gift of a scotch um it's one that i have had before but not this particular bottling so this was distilled in 2009 and bottled in 2019 so it is a 10 year old talisker and we have tasted talisker 10 back uh in june of 2021 on episode 75 when we were reflecting on the doctrine of god and now here we are right back in the weeds of it uh and you guys are in for a real treat tonight but um, so this bottle, though, what, what's different, uh, the normal Talisker 10 is matured in ex-bourbon casks, and so is this, but then it has a finishing maturation in Amoroso sherry cask wood, which just imparts this really remarkable flavor. Um, I'm, a hu- I'm a huge Talisker fan in general. I like the combination of flavors, and I think the Distiller's Edition is just a really nice indulgent treat. But to that end, Justin, uh, what do you get on the nose? Also, for you guys listening... We had our whole conversation with Dr. Dolezal, and then we are recording the tasting at the end, and then we're going to throw you guys back into the content. So so we're, we're still decompressing uh, from what ended up being two hours of recording together. So good. Yeah, so 
in typical Talisker fashion, you know, I'm getting salt and brine and ch- chalk, mm. seaweed, black pepper, peat smoke, black pepper. I get that some red fruits, smoke. kind of yep. raisin and cherry as well. Yeah, there's maybe, that rich uh, sweetness coming in from the Yeah, fruitiness. I was going to say maybe like vanilla ice cream. Yeah, so one thing about Talisker 10 is you tend to have very bright like citrus peel, like lemon, orange, and I don't really yeah. get that here because it's been the 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 sherry cask influence is really bringing those rich stone fruits, those dark flavors in, the dates, um the cherries and man, it is so complex and rich. Yeah. yeah. It's really it smells fantastic. I also get that like dark cocoa going on through there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a, a very slight hint of gingerbread. Okay. I see that. And it's a lovely, rich, uh, rich golden color here as this delicious nectar. Um, but yeah, let's get in and, and get some tasting notes on it. Cheers. Mm-hmm. It's like a warm blanket. Oh yeah, dude. Campfire, sea spray. Um, sort of a jam. You know, nougaty, fruity. Oh, it's fantastic. There's just it's so like, many, uh, so many good things. Like like grilled plums. <laughs> so specific. But I like well, it. Well, you get the you get the smoke and the plum and it kinda mm. Oh. It's got a long finish too. As I say, classic Talisker. There's that really long peppery finish that has that almost like the camp smoke being billowed up sensation. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much going on. And and on the second sip, I'm noticing more of those rich dark fruit notes. Yeah, Those raisins, dates, plums, dates, yeah. yeah. Somewhere in there. It's got kind of that oaky tannin, drying tannin too. Right, like a really right good the, red right wine. Right at the finish, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, yeah, it's got that same good. kind of effect. Man, yeah, this is um, this is a real treat of a scotch. If you have the opportunity to pick up Talisker Distiller's Edition, you do not want to miss it. It is, uh, mm-hmm. I know it's not available year-round either, so um, be mindful of that. I think, want to say 75 a bottle last I looked. Um, but just a really great scotch and one that is always a treat and a privilege, uh, when I get to have a sip of it. So mm-hmm. this is, and, and what a great occasion, right? Getting to talk to James Dole is all about divine simplicity and classical Christian theism. Um, I don't know, Justin, yeah. obviously we're about to have the listeners jump into what we just experienced, but what, what are your thoughts, uh, after we <laughs> finished our recording there? There's so much to unpack as far as what what i could what i could jump to one thing i liked he st- when he was talking about in the in the kind of the patron overtime there when we were talking about oh, yeah spoiler alert yeah when we we're talking about dealing with uh the fact that aquinas is a papist right? oh yeah uh one of the things he mentioned was right that the man's teachings sh- should stand on their own uh in that sense and and i think uh in many ways um that can be applied to to a lot of other categories, right? Um, I can I can listen to uh, some of the great teachings of different Armenians, for example, you know, or um, or or we can we can even apply that in a sense of like, well, 
how can you listen to Jonathan Edwards if he was a slave owner? Well, sure. Again, you're 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 you you can't reject his teachings based on <laughs> these other things, right? Um, and, and and to his other point, which is in that patron overtime, and you guys should just go over there and listen to it because it's really good. Yeah. the The other side of that equation is that doesn't negate the issues in character or in uh, the actual behavior of the person or their affiliations. Like that, that's not negated. Like we're not saying that they're suddenly okay right. be, because of their teaching, but at the same time, we're not saying that because their life or their affiliations were wrong, that their teaching can't stand on its own, you know, and this is an important distinction. And, and I noticed Sinner's a lot of the gonna times, sin, man. yeah, a, a lot throughout the episode, you guys are going to hear him talk about this idea of a mechanism of distinction. Right. And I, and I see that really consistently through his man, work. That, some of the things he was saying about that too, was just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Basically, like the Trinity and the relations. Oh man, guys, you're you're in for a, a really good tasting. Uh, we had like a page worth of notes and questions, and we in the main episode got to two of our questions because he just got so deep into it. Um, if you're like me, you're probably gonna have to listen to this a couple times. So, mm-hmm. pour a glass of Talisker Distillers Edition, sit with it, and indulge in this really rich scotch as we prepare to indulge in some really rich historical, robust systematic philosophical and biblical theology uh hope you guys enjoy it and now let's introduce you to our guest dr james dolezal james welcome to the program blake justin thanks for having me on glad to be here james uh before uh before you introduce yourself i guess uh we'll just we'll talk a little bit about you. Uh, you're a professor, at, uh, professor of theology at Cairn University, uh, a director at Radius Theological Institute, and you're a co-host on Theology on the Go with Jonathan Master, correct? Yeah, that's right. Jonathan and I have been together on that one. He's been on it longer. We've been together about five years uh, doing that podcast. Excellent. So you know all about this podcasting stuff then? You're I don't pro. know if I do. <laughs> I, you, you guys are the tech wizards. I just show up and do what I'm told usually. <laughs> That's fair. Um, you've also written uh, quite a bit of work. Um, we constantly recommend All That Isn't God. Um, we've recommended that a ton of times. Uh, also, God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness, um, along with Divine Impassibility, Four Views on God's Emotions and Suffering. Um, so, obviously, you are an esteemed author as well, and uh, we are really both uh, genuinely very grateful to have you on and um, and to dive into uh, some Christian classical Christian theism, gentlemen. Thanks, thanks for having me. I don't know about esteemed. I'll leave that to the reader's judgment. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunities I have uh, to write in this area. That's awesome. Before we jump in, let's open with prayer. Let's come before the Lord uh, and seek Him in prayer and humility before we uh, dive in and discuss our doctrine of God. Folks, we're reading from the Valley of Vision tonight, published by Banner of Truth, and this is from page four, and it's a prayer titled, God the All. <clears throat> o God, whose will conquers all, there is no comfort in anything apart from enjoying thee and being engaged in thy service. Thou art all in all, and all enjoyments are what to me thou makest them, and no more. I am well pleased with thy will, whatever it is, and should be in all respects. And if thou biddest me decide for myself in any affair, I would choose to refer all to thee. 
For thou art infinitely wise and can do, cannot do amiss, as I am in danger of doing. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and, it's, and it delights me to, to leave them there. Then prayer turns wholly into praise, and all I can do is to adore and bless thee. What shall I give thee for thy benefits? I am in a strait betwixt two, knowing not what to do. I long to make some return, but have nothing to offer, and can only rejoice that thou doest all, that none in heaven or on earth shares thy honor. I can of myself do nothing to glorify thy blessed name, but I can through grace cheerfully surrender soul and body to thee. I know that thou art the author and finisher of faith, that the whole work of redemption is thine alone, that every good work or thought found in me is the effect of thy power and grace, that thy sole motive in working in me to will and to do is for thy good pleasure. O God, it is amazing that men can talk so much about man's creaturely power and goodness, when if thou didst not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. This by bitter experience thou hast taught me concerning myself. Amen. Amen. So, uh, as always, wonderful prayer. <laughs> Usually is, always is. Um, but uh, as, as Blake kind of alluded to, we've done some episodes on some of these topics already. Um, most of our listeners should be at least somewhat familiar with terms like uh, divine simplicity. Um and classical Christian theism and others. Um, if you could, for us, uh, just give us a, a brief definition of, of what is classical Christian theism. Yeah, obviously that's a shorthand label uh, that you, you don't become classical until you've been around for a while. So it's sort of a, a post facto kind of from a distance. You look back and it's uh, it particularly focuses on doctrine of God questions, though you could say classical Christian orthodoxy broadly would include things like um, the, the creedal statements of Nicaea, but also Christological statements like Chalcedon and first, second, and third councils of Constantinople, sure. Ephesus uh, in 431. Um, so kind of the consensus of those would be classical Christian theism uh, broadly, more properly though, with regard to the doctrine of God, classical theism is just as a shorthand for a set of doctrinal commitments that can be found broadly uh, throughout Christendom, uh, north, south, east, west, over really more than a millennia and a half, kind of from the second century all the way down until, let me, I don't know until, I mean, we're talking about it now, so I guess until now, but if you want to talk about a kind of a, kind of a broad normative classical Christian theism, maybe somewhere in the 18th century before you start to see that sort of coming apart. Meaning in the 18th century, you still have classical theism articulated by a Baptist like John Gill, but even the father of Methodism, John Wesley, is arguably a classical theist. Strangely, mm -hmm. if you dial back the clock a little bit, strangely to a Calvinist, um, if you dial back the clock a little bit, you're going to find classical Christian theism in the writings of Jacob or James Arminius. Uh, I, I like to say Jacob because that keeps me out of it. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, I understand. James is just the, the Anglo version of Jacobus. So, um, yeah. Th so, I mean, but, you know, you, we can dispute with we can dispute with Wesleyans or Arminians over human free will and exactly how that relates to divine sovereignty. But when it comes to like Arminius's doctrine of God, he learned his doctrine of God 
probably down in Geneva when he was studying under Theodora Beza. And he, he really stays with that. Um, you'll find Turretin criticizing some of his followers, the remonstrants. Um, but as for Arminius himself, there's a consensus. Um, you'll find that consensus, and I'll get to some of sort of the content in a half second, but the consensus runs in the Protestant Reformation really across Lutheranism across uh, and Lutheran scholastics, across the whole, so the whole reform side of the spectrum, whether you're talking kind of Zurich or Geneva, um, branches of that, right up into England. When you, read the, when you read the 39 Articles of Religion in the Church of England, which are probably written a little earlier than they were ratified, probably written by Thomas Cramner, the first Protestant Archbishop, the very opening line says that the Lord our God is without body parts or passions. I mean, that's that's a kind of nice distillation of classical theism. Uh, and so you really find it across Protestantism. But if you roll back the clock further into medieval Roman Catholicism, um, late, but also high, and I'm thinking especially 13th century uh, theologians like Bonaventure or Thomas Aquinas among the Franciscans and Dominicans, respectively, or go back further uh, a century and a half to someone like Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, you're going to find the same, but you could keep going back and you could go back to the sixth century and find someone like Boethius or in the east, John of Damascus. Uh, going further back, or, or Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, going further back, uh, you could find classical Christian theism in Augustine. You can find it in Cyril of Alexandria. Earlier than that, Athanasius of Alexandria. Going back um, even further um, into the second century, you're going to find it in some of the second century apologists, um, as well as Irenaeus of Lyon and his against heresies. And so the question is, so there's the thing, you're going to find it in North Africa. You're going to find it in Western Asia. You're going to find it all over Europe. You're going to find it in Greek speakers, in Latin speakers, in what we now would call Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, and all branches of Protestant Christianity. Uh, I, I, can't, I guess I can't speak for the Radical Reformation on this because uh, I don't know it. But speaking for sort of branches of Protestantism and whether you're talking about Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists, which are a branch of our sort of warm hearted Anglicans, I guess. Um, <laughs> you no, know, you, you can you're going to find you're going to find it kind of cutting across all boundaries. If anything, I know you're thinking, what is it? But we'll get to that in a half second. <laughs> if anything has a claim to um, being a bona fide ecumenical Christian consensus, classical theism, particularly in its doctrine of God, would have right to that claim. Now, what does it consist of? Um, Probably the hardcore of classical theism is really a commitment to God as the absolute uncaused first cause of all things. And then a whole series of implications, doctrinal implications about God that necessarily follow from that commitment. So we might mention something like divine aseity, um, and that's just a Latinized name. Ase means that God is of himself. Um, and what we're saying with aseity, sometimes it's called divine independence or self-sufficiency. We're saying that the reason for God is God. If you ask the question, why God? The answer doesn't break down to something more fundamental than God. That's a, that's a necessary corollary of God as absolute first cause. The absolute yeah. first cause can't be dependent. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the absolute first cause. Uh, and so aseity is a necessary entailment of that sort of 
primal causality that that is the god of creation but if you even sort of tease it out further um other doctrines like the doctrine of divine simplicity uh, are then necessarily an implicate as well because if god were composed of parts like anything composed of parts he would depend on something more fundamental than himself to be himself i mean that's if i could sort of break down the concern there nothing not god makes god be god or more positively all that is in god is god or nothing in God, not God. These are all little bumper sticker versions of divine simplicity. <laughs> um, if you can put it. and what, but yeah. they're all protecting that core conviction that there's not something, not God, that causally accounts for God. You could you could tease that out further into a doctrine like divine impassibility, which says God is without passions. And if you want this in our Protestant traditions, you can look at the Westminster Confession, the 39 Articles of Religion, the Second London Confession, the Savoy Declaration. But you could go over to the you know, you could go over to the continent as well and look at something like the Belgic Confession a little earlier and see that the first thing they say is that God is simple. Um, which is interesting. The first thing it's also among the first things said by the 39 articles. Um, but it, they also say God's without passions and that God is impassable or not subject to passions. He doesn't undergo. It was really the sense of that. Um, and that's, you're going to find that across the board when he's, when he's defending eternal generation against the Arians, someone like Athanasius of Alexandria is going to say that the father begets the son. And he'll say not by partition because he's simple and not by passion or experiential undergoing because he's impassable. So you're going to find that kind of on, on all the continents in which Christianity put its footprint, which is Western Asia, North Africa, Southern Europe, you're going to find a broad consensus uh, with regard to that. If you, if you push it further, doctrines like divine immutability uh, come into the picture as well, that God is unable to change or cannot change. Uh, and then even maybe less, a um, little more philosophical sounding things that we tend to say about God, like God is infinite, for instance, that God is infinite or unbounded. Um, or if you want to indulge yourself in a bit of 13th century um, Thomism, I myself like to indulge in that a bit, uh, you will say something like God is pure act. Now, interestingly, Boethius, long before Aquinas, gets very close to saying something like that, though Aquinas really finesses it and works it out systemically. Uh, but saying something like God is pure act or unboundedness of being or infinite, we would say. Um, so these are, if you want to kind of get to the hardcore, all of these cluster around that hard Christian commitment to God as absolute first cause. All of these are really elaborations defending the uncausedness of the divine. And I, I think that's that God is not made to be, and that there aren't causal, causal principles to which he's reducible. That really is what Christ, classical Christian theism is about. And then the cluster of doctrines that amplify that or inflect that, that's kind of what we call classical Christian theism broadly. Well, that's great. So that's, that's everything. I, I tried to get you guys on multiple <laughs> continents across millennia uh, with consensus. Yeah, no pressure there. Um, okay. Well. No, that's so good. I, uh, man, so many good things. I, I have another note uh, in the notes, but before I get to that, I just want to touch very briefly on a comment from, uh, which we actually talked about back in episode 21, I think, um, when we were teasing out the doctrine of God as a, as a loci of systematic theology. And there's something Dr. Sproul used to speak about with, um, and I know it's it's bigger than him, but he's where I heard it first, uh, this idea of speaking of God in negation and speaking of God by um, 
uh, I forget the the terminology of ex- like extending it to the nth degree, where yeah. you're saying he's all powerful. Like I Eminence. understand, yeah, yeah. Um, so and I, and I heard you reference a couple of those terms, right? He's immutable. He's he is not mutable, and so it's less a statement. Uh, and you say this in the book, right? It's less a, a positive statement describing God as much as it is a boundary line uh, uh, across which we may not cross to protect this commitment to God's uncausedness, as you were saying. And in the book, I remember you, and, and also I've heard a couple podcasts that you've been on before, so I'm trying to not totally retread where we've been so people can go listen to that other content and, and hopefully get something uh, something hey, I'm happy to say it again. I mean, I'm, I I'm earnest. I'll just I'll <laughs> say it. it again. I love it. Um, but in speaking about those kinds of attributes, right? We we hear people talk about uh, communicable and incommunicable as, as these terms to describe attributes of God, and then we have this strange sounding. At least it was strange to me the first time I heard it. This strange assertion that all of God's attributes are identical with His essence, and so therefore God's love is His justice and His mercy is his holiness and these things and his immensity or his uh, immutability is his, uh, is his goodness. Um, could you flesh that out a little bit as we go into to divine simplicity? How do we get to a statement like that as, as classical Christians in this, in this doctrinal stream, if you will, with these commitments, why do we say things like that uh, specifically when we come to simplicity? And, and I guess broadly, what do we mean when we say simplicity? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, I mean, posit- there, there is, I want to say, with regard to the negation uh, affirmation really quickly, um, there is a certain sense in which we want to be we want to be wary of being um, purely a, ne- uh, a negative. I don't mean that in a bad moral sense, but purely negative in our in our theology. So like, there are medieval theologies like, like that of Moses Maimonides which are sort of purely negations. All we can say is what God is not. Um, Aquinas, I think rightly, and the Protestants follow him in this regard, uh, wants to say, but there's a there's a positive um, side in which the reason we say that God is immutable is because he is infinite fullness of being, because his name is I am, uh, because we see God as the one who is boundless in being and glory. Because of that positive affirmation of boundlessness, anything that would suggest boundedness, like mutation, like undergoing passion, like composition of parts, like dependency upon principles, therefore not I'll say, these would all indicate some kind of boundedness. And so it is that positive commitment to unboundedness, but we should, we, or I mean, even that is a negation, the negation of boundaries. Uh, what we should, what we should say is, um, and I think Aquinas does this well, the Protestants follow him broadly in this way, uh, that he is act pure and simple not act bounded by a receiving principle that contracts it. And so there is that positivity on that side, but we should be very careful to say we don't comprehend that. Meaning I don't, I can't get my mind around something that isn't composite. I I know why I need to affirm it and I know what theological role it plays, but I, I don't pretend to have comprehension of it. I, I could tell you a thousand things, maybe more that it isn't. Um, but that doesn't mean that the conception of my mind corresponds in a one-to-one way to pure actuality. And this is, I, I think it's important to put this down because at the, at the front end as a kind of a marker to say what we're not doing in classical Christian theism is figuring God out and explaining him and boxing him into some kind of Aristotelian category. And I, I mean that in the proper scientific sense of 
the category of substance plus the nine categories of accidents. In other words, what we're really trying to do in classical Christian theism is ensure that God, in a certain sense, isn't a thing in the world, meaning I'm not not against omnipresence. I mean, an item that is enumerated among the things. And so, you you know, I look out my window and I see I see grass and trees and asphalt and clouds and people taking walks. And I and I and I start counting up the things in the world, human, you know, floral, fauna, humans. And then and then, you know, you look around. Oh, and God and is God uh, an item to be enumerated inside of this categorical order of things has got a thing inside of the order sharing space with us. Um, And what we want to say is no. And so the denial of the composition of parts is really, uh, if you can think about it, like maybe, maybe come at this from a slightly different angle. If we say God is infinite, then, and by the way, most Christians do. I mean, I haven't, I don't meet a lot of Christians who are like that, that infinite God stuff. That's bunk. Uh, I'll tell you what, (laughs) God's finite. He's definitely fine. I mean, there are Christians who probably their theology cashes out like that, but they don't, they wouldn't say it that way. It just seems too, too crass and demeaning to say it that way. Nevertheless, this doesn't mean though, that we necessarily understand the implications of not being finite. And the reason is not because we don't comprehend finitude. It's because we're, we're actually not very good at articulating the structure of finitude itself. Meaning if, if I, if someone were to say to me, um, or well, I'll put it like this. If someone says, I believe God's infinite, that's a denial of finitude. Then I, I do think that we need to sort of concretely articulate or express what we mean by finite. Uh, in other words, what renders a thing finite? And, and the answer that is tip that is nowadays given, although in the olden days, it would have been a little different is, well, anything that's made by another is finite. Anything that depends upon something that makes it is anything dependent upon something that makes it is somehow finite to which I want to say, well, that's not untrue. <laughs> uh, I would affirm that, but that's a kind of, um, extrinsic account of finitude. So what you're really doing is you're looking at a relationship that I have to something outside of me that causes me. And you're saying, because of that, I can't be boundless being because my being is received from another. uh, And therefore I can't be boundlessness, which is a fair point. But is there, and this comes to simplicity though, but is there another way also, a corollary way to account for finitude? That is to say, if we were to leave that aside for the moment and just say, is there something about my constitution, me and the way that I am, now that I am created, is there something about me as created intrinsically that structures and contours my finitude? Right. I mean, that's that's the question. So it's not a question simply of an external account of finitude. Can I give an internal account of finitude? What is it about me that indicates boundedness? Where is where is limitation to be found in my structure of being? That's okay. And this is and Aquinas gives an answer. The Protestants follow him, but it's not when I say Aquinas, I mean, I'm taking Aquinas in two ways. If if, if people want to, if your listeners want to know why do I appeal to Aquinas? Because Aquinas is a very good student of what has gone before him. 
he is very much a, while there's a there were while there's some bona fide originality in Thomas, particularly with the way that he works out the pure act. Um, idea, and particularly with regard to his whole philosophy of to be or of essay. I'll leave that aside. There's certainly originality. There's also a great deal of synthesis in Aquinas of the good bits of theologians who'd gone before him, also bits of philosophy. I know everyone says Aristotle, but there's a pretty stout dose of Neoplatonism that comes in there to kind of leaven the Aristotelianism because you don't have a doctrine like divine ideas in Aristotelianism. You don't have a doctrine of participation in Aristotelianism. In a kind of in a, in a viewpoint where you need a creator-creature distinction, you're going to need something like divine ideas and participation. So he borrows eclectically different philosophical traditions and also different strands of the Christian tradition into a synthesis. Uh, and many who follow him, not just among Dominicans in the Roman Catholic world, but even Protestant scholastics, both Lutheran and Reformed, uh, follow a lot of his sort of conclusions and articulations and syntheses, if you will. That said, Aquinas wants to know whether there's something inside of us that constitutes finitude, not just an external relation uh, in which we stand. And he he discovers the constitution of finitude in compositeness, composition. So composition of parts is is actually a metaphysical, physical and metaphysical way of uh, establishing boundedness. Because what happens in an entity parts is that the reason an entity composed of parts uh, can't be infinite and must be finite um, is because parts, by definition, are finite, meaning they are. And here's how you know it, because parts are inferior to wholes. Every part that functions as a part is always less than the whole of which it is a part. Otherwise, it would just be a whole. <laughs> so you can't you can't aggregate finitude, which is what parts are, you can't, you can't add enough parts to finally graduate from finitude to infinitude. Multipartedness is founded on finitude because parts as such must be finite just to be parts. No matter how many you add together, no, no matter how elaborate that composite thing is, whether it's a whether it's as simple as an amoeba or as complex as a Boeing 737 with, with 6 million parts, um, I'm taking that's Wikipedia. I didn't count, but that's I just I like to say like I, I cite that like I know. But anyway, but let's just it seems plausible to me. Um, so I repeat it. Uh, but you can take something that is very non complex, relatively simple and relatively complex. Um, and what you find is they will always be finite because parts delimit parts. Part puts a boundary to the other part. Physically, you can see this. Um, where one physical bit begins, another physical bit must find its end. And where, and where one physical bit is up against another physical bit, if you can divide that physical bit of matter, then you can have a part that is more exactly at the center and at the periphery. And if you can cut that again, theoretically, you know what I'm after? Um, bits outside of bits are actually, this is a quite, I'm giving you Aquinas in kind of layman's terms, but Bits outside of bits are, in fact, the very structure of finitude itself. So what you're doing in a part is you are actually denying every other part of it. Does that make sense? So let's just come to like my let's just come to certain. Um, I, I don't know. Attributes uh, that I have as made in God's image. 
And so, and this, and I'm, I'm Blake, I haven't forgotten your question. I'm building, I'm, I'm, I'm clawing my way Go. back to it. <laughs> Keep going. Of, I'm going to start bringing sound effects into, to accentuate okay. it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like little like bits colliding, like some kind of, you could, you could really soup this up. So, <laughs> so when you think of it like this, that nothing composed of parts can be infinite because parts necessarily must be less than holes and nothing that is necessarily less than a whole can be aggregately, um, compounded into unboundedness. Um, you don't get to infinity uh, from bits of boundedness, if I can say it like that. Yeah. So let, and I guess the other thing we should say about parts also is this, that every part, well, let me just say this. If you're going to deny parts of God and well, like, like infinity, if you're going to say God is infinite, you're going to have to be able to give me an account of finitude and, and probably it'd be good if you could give a fairly elaborate account of finitude. When Aquinas denies parts of God and, and, and all parts of God and all part whole compositions uh, or part, part, you know, unities in God, he's actually exploring the various structures of finitude itself. And, and it turns out that among creatures, not all creatures are equally finite. Um, so for instance, uh, some will say that angels are relatively infinite. I made that claim once, 11 years ago. I stand by that claim. Uh, and here's what I mean by it. That not every creature is equally bounded or bounded in the same way as every other bounded creature. So for instance, angels, I take the view that angels are pure spirits. Um, so that angels don't, there are, there are two kinds of compositions constituting finiteness that can't obtain in the case of an angel, which is a created pure spirit, uh, namely composition of body parts. So material bit to material bit, there's no material bit. So there's not that composition. Moreover, there can't be composition of form and matter. So like in me or in you guys, there is composition of form and matter. There's humanity. And then there's the, the matter in which your humanity is formed. Or if you want to put it in the terms of the soul, there's your soul. And then there's the bit of matter that has your soul and is thereby constituted human matter so that we can actually talk about the, my material principle and my formal principle. My formal principle is my soul. My material principle is my body and my material principle limits my soul quantitatively and my soul limits my material principle formally by making it humankind, not some other material kind. So are you getting this? Like yeah. composition yeah. is the structure of finitude. Yeah. If you're going to say God's composed of parts, then just own it and say, I don't believe in an infinite God. Do, do you know yeah. what I'm at? Like, so there's a <laughs> yeah. lot. Yeah. In, there's a lot in here. Ooh. I know. I, I, I turn up the heat a little bit. I love but it. Like, great. That's what great. we're here for. So that would be an implication. Oh, wait, and this is on. why this is why everybody everywhere in all languages and in all continents of early Christianity would say emphatically God is without parts because of this, because they understood the implications of it. Okay. Um. But an ain't back to relative infinity for a moment. I'm, I still haven't forgotten your question, Blake. Like I'm, I'm, I'm still he's, he's broadly inside. I'm not in the gutter yet. I'm still on the lane. My wife gives me a, a hard time because she'll ask me a yes or no question, and we'll end up five minutes later with a story, and she'll say, "Okay, Blake, is it is it yes or no?" Though I, I you know, so I I sympathize. <laughs> okay, keep, yeah. Keep so, uh, all right. So you're you're a sympathetic listener with me. On okay, thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> This so the question of angels, but angels don't have 
material bits limiting and putting a limit or an edge on other material bits. Um, nor do angels have immaterial forms that are contracted to material a material principle like matter or prime matter. And so when some of the traditions say the angels are relatively infinite, what they really mean is relatively less composed or less composite, less composed, few, they were composed of fewer parts or maybe put a little differently. Um, there are fewer parthood compositions in angels. There's no, there's no body part composition in angels. There is no um, form matter composition in angels. And so for this reason, the very nature of an angel is relatively less finite. That's what I mean by relatively infinite. Um, they do not exhibit finitude in exactly all the ways that we do. Like we are more finite than they are. It, does that make does that make sense? Yeah, because we are composed you. of parts in ways they aren't. I mean, that would be yeah. right. So but, to put it really yeah. crassly, right? They would you could say, um, and this is obviously just a really reductionist analogy to what you're saying. But if we're just using numbers of parts as an analogy, they they have three parts and we have thirty seven, right? As a as a really dumbed down way to explain so think it, right? of, so so okay, let's run that for a second. Think about it like this. Um, Every whole, let me, let's come back to parts for a moment. Um, a part is anything in an entity or in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the whole would be really different than it is. Is that a, like I, yeah, that's I've fair. worked hard to kind of like break it down to that. I think that <laughs> fits. I don't know. Do you guys, if you've ever read books on the science of Mariology, which is the, which is the division of philosophy that studies part whole relations. It's a whole, I mean, you'll find books from Oxford university press just in call, just entitled parts. It's like the whole book <laughs> and it's, it's explore. It's fascinating. It's a of, fascinating. Of <laughs> What's that? Of course. That's bedtime reading. That. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Put, put, you know, put parts right next to value vision. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is, but you're studying Mariology is studying part the status of parts and the status of parts vis-a-vis -vis other parts, the status of parts vis-a-vis -vis holes and the different ways in which different kinds of principles can be parts. Um, and so not all parts are of the same variety. Um, we can talk up even, we could talk about essential parts and accidental parts. Essential parts are the sort of sine qua non, the without which nothing. And then accidental parts are the, um, you could survive the loss of them, so to speak, but you'd lose something in the bargain, right? So like right now I have the accidental part of speaking. This is an accident of action. Um, an accident of action is, is not identical with me, the substance. I have this action right now um, so that I am speaking, putting the full emphasis on am, but I can lose the am. I can lose the is. The state of being speaker can be lost to me when I fall silent. And then I lose is, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. James is speaking. And then when I lose is James is not. And I actually lose a real state of being when I lose the accidental part, the action, which is an, which is one of Aristotle's nine categories of accidents, the action of speaking. So parts, think about parts this way. Parts are in a certain sense. Um, and they parts are parts contribute to the is parts contribute to being parts fund being in composites. That's how parts relate to them. And composites depend, and I'm going to come back to your three and 37 parts in a second. 
composites depend upon those parts. And actually, the more multi-parted a thing is, the more dependent it is. So think about think about the difference between, like, say, a Boeing 737 and a pogo stick, which are both vehicles for transportation involving elevation. Fair? Yeah. You're like, mm-hmm. what do they have in common? But, you know, yeah. get off the ground. OK, I'm, I'm reaching there. I'm stretching. <laughs> but just like indulge me for a moment. Like they're both vehicles of transportation. So like I could I could get to. You know, right now I'm sitting in California. I could get to Philly and I can go on a 737 or I could be the first guy ever to pogo stick all the way across America. Both of them are vehicles for transportation involving elevation <laughs> and, uh, and descent as well. OK, um, OK. Now, here's the th- here's the thing, though. Obviously, one of them is much more effective and convenient and yeah. they serve ginger ale and the other one not. <laughs> but like you could but you could say you could say, OK, but multipartedness. Certainly in, in a material creature, multi in a material creature, material creatures of more parts tend to also have more powers. Does that make sense? So like the parts of a Boeing 737 actually fund the ability of the Boeing 737 to do lots of things like take off, land, um, you know, do whatever it does. What do I know about it? I'm at the end of it. Take off and land. There we go. There's my aerospace uh, engineering uh, prowess at work. Uh, brew coffee and give you a private bathroom experience if you need it. You know what I'm saying? Like a Boeing 7th, pogo stick can't, pogo stick. And the thing is the pogo stick lacks uh, wing flaps. It lacks jet engines. It lacks a coffee maker and uh, a latrine. So, you know, there you go. So it lacks all these parts. And then the lacking of all these parts, it also lacks the, it lacks the ability to do what a Boeing 737 does. So we can say, oh, well, Boeing 737 is more amazing. And why? Because it's got more, it has more parts. So it can do more things. And so the more parts, the more powerful. The fewer parts, the less powerful. Um, okay, when you're talking about material thing to material thing, fair point. Um, but also we should make this observation with regard to dependency, but the Boeing 737 is a much more dependent artifact. Yeah. Meaning, um, the ways in which it can go wrong are just (laughs) in so many as the many more parts it has than the pogo stick. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, like if my pogo stick breaks and I go to the pogo stick repair man, which I've never even heard of, but if there were one, you know, I probably, I'd probably take a whack at it myself in the garage with some, you know, the stuff in a toolbox. Um, I guess whatever the spring is, the spring is off sent, you know, something's off or, you know, something like this, but like, what could, I mean, this is the thing really, what could go wrong seriously with a pogo stick? (laughs) Not a whole lot. Right. What, what? Sorry, everyone. The pogo sticks are grounded. I mean, how what would it take for that to happen? But what could go wrong with a Boeing 737? As many ways as it is multi-parted, it can go wrong. And mm-hmm. also, in as many ways as it is multi-parted, it is dependent to just that extent for some function, for some aspect of its being or operation. But here's the thing. God is all powerful, but not the way in which a multi-parted powerful thing is. Because they are powerful just in so much as they depend upon things, not themselves to be a Boeing 737 depends on not a Boeing 3737 to be a Boeing 737. 
But God's power is just God's self. God's power isn't funded by little bits that aren't actually himself. Like things not actually the airplane fund the airplane to make the airplane powerful, but nothing not God funds Mm. God to make God powerful. So we have to kind of disengage that. Uh, Into the three and 37 parts, Blake, um, it really comes down to this. Um, There's a certain sense in which there's a relative independency and a relative self-sufficiency in the thing of fewer parts. Does that make sense? Because it's less dependent on what is not itself to be itself. So there's, so I would say with regard to angels and humans, angels are relatively less dependent than we are. It's not just that they're relatively fewer parted than we are. They're also relatively by consequent, less dependent than we are. Like an angel doesn't have to give itself energy by metabolizing organic matter into angel matter. So an angel doesn't, um, an angel doesn't have to get to the knowledge of universals by abstracting them through an agent intellect, having first grabbed the image from a sensible image. And an angel doesn't have to move from sense experience to an abstractive knowledge of natures. So like angels know things that we don't know. And angels have insight into the natural order that we don't have. And part of it comes down to the fact that they are not as composite as we are. Their relatively less composite nature of being actually functions to enable them to operate and to be in ways that are relatively less dependent and restricted than we are. Does that that make sense? So if you, if you kind of move up to, to non-multi-parted, but nevertheless, the angels are still multi-parted. Um, most fundamentally of existence and essence. Um, to be what and to be are not the same thing. There's a principle of whatness and a principle of isness. And in the angel, they are irreducibly distinct from each other. Uh, to put it in Bible terms, the, the name of no, of no created angel is I am. I mean, there's Michael and there's Gabriel and if you, you know, and if you read the Apocrypha, there's Raphael and my all-time favorite Metatron. Um, but, but there's not, you know, and why not? There are myriads of myriads. I'll bet there's one named Metatron. So <laughs> the point, you know, the point is, the point is that angels are, the, the point is the angels, though, still are not I am. Right. They're not pure act. They are an act of existence contracted to a principle of nate of essence uh essence an essential principle angelicity of a certain sort i'll call i'll call it that they're also composed uh of substance and accidents which is to say i'll give you an example um can a can an angel's will which is a which is an activity of its intellect can an angel's will um or volition change and we'd have to say yes, at least to account for the fall of Satan and the angels who fell with him so that they're mutable. They are not pure act. In fact, they can take on new moral acts different than their previous moral acts. They can move from good to bad, even as many did when they fell. Um, so angels are composed of existence essence um, and of substance accident uh, at the very least. Um, and to that extent, they also participate in the structures of finitude. And that's really what I'm after with multi-partedness is the very heart and soul of finitude, but we need to be careful. There are, there are variety cross sections of, of ways of being multi-parted. 
Material bits, form and matter, subject and nature, existence and essence, substance and accidents. These are all different ways of carving up multi-partedness. The Christian tradition denies of God that he is composed of parts in any of these ways or any ways at all. Um, because otherwise there'd be something more basic than God in God upon which he depended for some aspect of his being. Um, and that won't serve, that won't do for the first cause of all things to the, all right, Blake, I'm finally there. So you're, <laughs> so this, I don't know. I'm, I could just cut a straight course, but why not, why not wander a little bit? Cause it, cause Prone it is wander, interesting. Lord, I feel it. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, not, not that kind of wander, no, I, but you know, what I mean. a, a kind of, uh, no, it's a, good. It's a wonderful, all good. Theological wandering uh, yeah. uh, can can raise questions and and hopefully clarify mm-hmm. some things. All right, so now we come to the attributes of God: goodness and wisdom and power and love and justice and eternality. These are all things that we attribute, among other things. These are all names that we give to God. We attribute to Him. We say the perfection of all these names is in God, and in us, uh, in creatures. I'm going to come back now to this. Uh, we can talk about these features or attributes as parts, uh, which are in us really distinct. So let's just take, um, Mm -hmm. let's just take something like, um, wisdom and might scripture calls God, the almighty, uh, and it also calls him wise. And we can, and we can also take a mighty and wise man and let's just take a, a good and, you know, benign ruler. Uh, let's just take someone like King David. King David is a mighty king who's, who's valiant in battle and who judges wisely, even if his son Solomon is more notable for his wisdom. Let's call, let's call David wise. Um, is power or might and wisdom, are they identical in David? So what I want to say is a couple of things. A, they are not identical with David, meaning, I mean, and you know this, right? Oh, yeah. Because... Sometimes, sometimes David is morally weak. Witness the Bathsheba incident and Uriah incident. Sometimes morally weak, not just sexually, but also he fails to love his neighbor when he sends out his neighbor to his death. I mean, this is, in other words, we can say that, and yet was David, was David, you know, was he mighty in some ways? Yes. And in some ways, no. Was he wise? Sometimes yes. And sometimes he was a fool and a slave to his passions. And yet all the while, he's still David. And so for David to be David and David to be wise aren't the same, in which case then we have to say there's a real distinction between David and the wisdom by which he's wise. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why was he ever foolish? But he was. Um, The the same thing with regard to other attributes of David, like strength. Um, You could say, was David ever was David ever weak in his like was David ever mighty in his body? Yes, witness the young man who defeats a lion and a bear and a giant and who goes out and, you know, gets 200 Philistine foreskins when he was only required to get 100. Um, I mean, this is this is a this is a warrior. (laughs) But then look at David at the end of his life, curled up on his bed under a blanket in which he can't even maintain his own body heat. And somebody has to be put in there next to him just to more or less keep him alive. Um, Right. You got this. So the point is so. Being David and being strong aren't identical. Strong is an attribute of David, but clearly it's a mutable one because he loses it in his outer man. He loses it as he grows to older age. 
Um, and so what we should say is David, when he's strong and wise, we can say David has wisdom and David has strength. There's a real distinction between David and his wisdom and David and his yes. strength. These are, these are properties, accidental properties, as it turns out, in virtue of which, and I, I'm trying to be very precise with that language, in virtue of which David is wise or David is strong or David is any of the things he is beyond sort of being David. Um, and these various accidental attributes um, are really distinct from David, and they're also really distinct from each other. And this is this, so like in David, to be wise and to be strong aren't the same thing because David, I'll just I'll just pick that, that thing at the end of his life. David is lying on his bed and his strength, his bodily strength has left him. But Bathsheba comes in and appeals for David to do the right thing with regard to her son, Solomon. Remember this? Um, he's got a brother who's going to put himself, who wants to put himself up on the throne and they all think dad's about to die and they're agitating for who's going to be the successor to the throne. And David, David, I think I'm trying to remember now, I'm just going off the top of my head, calls in Nathan. Is it Nathan he calls in? I want to say that if I'm not, check your Bibles because that that's right. <laughs> calls him in and says, go and go and proclaim him king. And that's a very, that's a very wise move. So can David be wise and not strong? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like weak in body. So my point is then it turns out that strength and wisdom, not only are distinct from David, strength and wisdom are also distinct from each other in David. And in fact, this is how it is with our attributes. David's, David's goodness, David's strength, David's wisdom, um, all other sorts of accidents in David, like the accident of position lying in bed or the accident of position sitting on a throne or standing in a field facing a giant. These are all different states of being in David. These are all these are all distinct attributes, accidental or even his essential features that are distinct from each other. So like to be to be body is not the same in David as to be soul. David has a soul. David has a body. Uh, he says that when he dies, he will go to his son, but he's not going to go to his son and his body, in which case then uh, when I say soul, when I say body, I don't mean the same thing. These are really distinct parts of God, parts of David. Okay. So to the question with regard to God's attributes, wisdom and love and justice and power and, 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 and the rest are, is there in God a corresponding real distinction among the attributes as there is in the creatures that in the intellectual and moral creatures that imitate God, meaning angels and humans. And I think the temptation to cut. So divine simplicity says all that is in God is God. Therefore his at his goodness is himself. His love is himself or is himself. Um, so, Theologians traditionally have said that this means, when I say traditionally, I mean kind of like early medieval, like think of like Boethe, like sixth century. Well, you're going to get it in Augustine as well. So we might as well go back to late fourth, early fifth century. Um, let's just say like from Augustine through Boethius on, uh, on, down, to, um, on down to Anselm, who's very clear on this, to later to Thomas Aquinas. And then I'm just going to say it to every reform scholastic and Puritan you ever loved. They're all going to say to a man, um, well, let's say to a man, there might be an outlier. I don't know who it would be. It'd be interesting to find it because it'd be so absurd, uh, even if it's there, uh, that in God, all the attributes are identical to each other. 
uh, because to be God and to be wise aren't just, uh, are the same and to be God and to be powerful are the same. God is wise in virtue of godness and it's the self-same godness in virtue of which he is powerful and therefore power and wisdom or power and goodness or goodness and love are all identical in God. The, the concern, I think, uh, sometimes, by the way, and everyone would have said that, that, the, that there, there's no real distinction among the attributes. Right. The distinction is in our way of conceiving these perfections, because I can't think simple thoughts of God. I can only think multi-parted thoughts of God. There's a sense of which in scripture, in the language of scripture, and in the image of God that it ref- is refracted into the created order itself, especially in the human order as we experience it. These things that in God are identical are in fact disclosed to us bit by bit under the form of multi-partedness. And not just in uh, the way in which we imitate God, but also in the way in which God inspires the biblical writers to speak of him. He'll speak of his might and his love and his justice. Um, and he'll use multi and he'll use the multi-part, the, the multi-parted language of humans to describe himself this way. But what we need to be careful of doing is reading off of the surface grammar, the multi-parted shape of the grammar, a multi-partedness with regard to God. Now, some, I think, want to say, well, I don't believe God has parts, but I still don't think his, essential, his attributes are really identical with each other. So his goodness is not his wisdom, is not his love, is not his justice, because when I say wisdom, I don't mean justice. And when I say justice, I don't mean goodness. But actually, there's something there's something going on there. There's a philosophical pre-commitment that's at work when people say that, which is this, that what you're actually saying is when I make a distinction in ratio in my language, ratio means the conceptuality of a thing or the, you know, the rationale of a thing. When I make a distinction in ratio, there must always be a corresponding distinction in re, which is to say. When I make a conceptual distinction between power and justice, that could only be grounded on a real distinction between power and justice out there in the thing. So when I say God's wisdom and I say God's justice, because that's not double talk and because I don't and because the meaning of wisdom and the meaning of justice aren't the same. Therefore, justice and what did I say? Justice and wisdom. Wisdom. Yeah. Feels like that. All right. Then therefore, justice and wisdom can't be the same thing because I mean different things by them. But what you're doing is you're making an an unarticulated move from conceptual distinction to real distinction. And what you're actually saying is wherever I make conceptual distinctions, it can only be that there's a corresponding real distinction out there grounding it. Right. Well, and that kind of gets into the uh, univocalist language, right? Of of everything has to be one to one, right? I don't know. The people who say that will say they're not univocist, but then then they, you know, they quack and waddle <laughs> yeah. like univocist yeah. uh, when they when they speak like that. Right. And that, that is a by the way, that's a philosophical presupposition about how predication and conceptualities relate to realities. I mean, there's a there is a there is a philosophical pre-commitment. I'm not even saying it's false. I think it's false, but I'm not. It's not my point right now. My point is you are making that kind of assumption that multi uh, multiple conceptualities must actually sync up with multiply distinct in other words as distinct as my concepts are so must the distinctions be in the thing about which i have the concepts right what we should say is that there is a conceptual distinction in ratio 
between the meaning of wisdom and of power and of love and of justice. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make the meaning of those terms, the ratio identical. Simplicity is not about collapsing language into synonymity. That is not what simplicity is about. Otherwise, if God were simple and all that is in God is God and all of his attributes were identical, and that meant that we had to have identical names and, and ratio for all of the attributes, then this is what we would say. Simple. Hmm. <laughs> That'd be, you know, after like multi-part of God talk would end right then. Right. Um, in other words, in other words, there's a distinction in ratio, but an identity in Ray, in the real, in the thing, in the reality. Here's the, uh, one other implication of this, Blake, because you brought it up. And you just, you know, you got, you got me going. One other implication of this is that what you're really saying when you say the attributes are not really identical in God is what you're saying is that in God, his wisdom is not identical with his goodness and is not his power. And is, in other words, you're denying every other, every, if every attribute is really distinct from every other attribute, you're actually denying the perfection of every attribute to every other attribute. Does does that make sense? Oh yeah. So there's (laughs) my little sound design. That's good. I like, I like, I gotta, I gotta get one of those. Oh, it's so Um, fun. You know that, but does that make sense? So what you're really saying is you're saying that God's power, this is actually what it comes down to. God's power is not, and that's very, I'm, gonna, I'm putting a lot of emphasis there, but for a reason, we'll see why in a second. God's power is not his wisdom, is not his justice, is not his love. And what you're really denying is you're denying the is of every other attribute to every other, of every attribute to every other attribute. And so in the end, the is of wisdom and the is of justice are dis- are really distinct in God. And therefore, it turns out that you can deny all day long that that's a part, but it functions exactly the way that parts functioned historically and that was rejected by the broad Christian tradition. So anyway, I bring up the is not, though, Blake, because, because of an orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I don't want to like totally get off simplicity if you're not ready to, but just simply to say there is a question with regard to the Trinity. And I I guess we should bring it up right now in the context. So we don't lose the thread. When I say, and and there are, there are, um, there are a series of is nots that I'll predicate of God. And they are these odd intra. I mean, the father is not the son and is not the spirit. The son is not the father and is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father and is not the son. Amen. And in fact, I will go further and I will say, I mean, not further. I'll say the same thing uh, uh, positively. The father is really distinct from the son and spirit. The son is really distinct from the father and spirit. And the spirit is really distinct from the father and son. Okay. And so now the question is, well, wait a minute. How come I get to say that about the persons, but I don't get to say that about the attributes? Am I not just sort of carving out a little exception to the doctrine of simplicity in order to pull off Trinity. Right. I mean, that's that, I mean, that's the, that would be a concern that would be understandably raised. Well, and that was Mm -hmm. part of my criticism, not to jump in too hard here, but from my background as a Unitarian, the big hurdle I had was not even the claims that the son and the spirit were divine. Cause I, I was getting to that place from scripture, but I could not get past this how are we not either creating a tripart God or right. tritheism or modalism? How are we not ending up in either of these places? And so 
I was living proof of the the logical conclusion of where mm -hmm. I think you're heading here with what happens if we start to introduce this part language in a way that is divorced from simplicity. But sorry, you got you got me fired up so there. So what I no, that's all right. No, that's good. That's good because what we, what we don't want to do is we don't want to say. Let's just start with this. God is without parts. Because parts are less than holes and, and holes depend upon parts that are not identical with themselves. And so the persons, God is without parts. And therefore the father, son, and spirit are not parts of God. Come on. Let's just, let's just get that down and say it that way. So that whatever the relationship of <laughs> whatever the relationship of the persons to the divine nature is, it's not that of part to whole or to the divine being. In fact, what is the relationship of the persons to divinity? This is it identity. If identity can fall under a relation term, um, kind of in a boutique way, I suppose, um, identity. What I should actually say is the father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. I shouldn't put an asterisk next to it and qualify that as if something true God was lacking in any one of the persons. The only thing the son is not is the father and spirit, but he is is true God, fullness of deity. And that fullness is not a generic or specific fullness. It's the numerically same fullness that is the fullness of the father and is the fullness of the spirit. The is not. So here's the challenge with the Trinity. The Trinity doctrine faces the challenge and, and one that needs to be met and has been met historically, which is if I say that there are, you know, kind of, if I can kind of riff off the Athan Athanasian creed, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son and Spirit, Son not the Father and Spirit, Spirit not the Father and Son. Um, these three are God, and yet not, there are three who are God, and yet not three gods. Okay? And so what I have to avoid doing is I have to avoid using the Trinity to either divide the unity into multipartedness or multiply the unity into three substances. And that's the, temp that's the temptation that Trinity must avoid carving up into three parts on the one side or multiplying into three beings on the other side. Mm. So I can't have three gods and I can't have a three-parted God. Trinity is whatever sails between those two rocky shoals. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Trinity is what sails between those two, but how? Um, and I think this is now kind of bringing it around to simplicity a little bit. Um, it is because of simplicity that the Son, Father, and Spirit are just identical with the divine nature. There's nothing in God that is not God. If Godness or Theotes is what Paul calls the divine nature in Romans 1, if Theotes or Godness were in any sense lacking in any one of the persons, we couldn't say the Father is God or the Son is God. We could say they participate in God. Uh, interestingly, oh, this is interesting. I wouldn't say that the three persons are divine because they all partake of the divine nature. They do not partake of the divine nature. They are the divine nature. Partaking, we gotta, we have to flog that out of our language. That's the wrong thing to say. To take in part is not the right thing to say about a divine person vis-a-vis -vis the divine nature. We should stop doing that um, right now. Um, that, I'm not saying you guys. I'm just yeah, you know, yeah, saying. Come on. <laughs> um, interestingly, you'll like, you'll find that a lot of the older theologians will say that, you know, people will, nowadays, people will say, oh, well, the son participates in the same nature with the father and the spirit. They absolutely do not because participation is in fact a way of incomplete joining to, to partake, to take in part. 
Um, does that make sense? And so it's not it's not like they each take part of divinity and the father takes maybe the biggest part or the most authoritative part or something like that. And then the son and spirit get the leftovers. Um, they're not partakers. <laughs> holy we, you EFS, know, the only man <laughs> what, what's that? said holy EFS, Batman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it would be that um, yeah. what happens in like the only partakers of the divine, the only participants or partakers of the divine nature in the Bible are us, <laughs> us, not the father, son and spirit, um, because they just are the divine nature. That's it. They are the th- they are the really distinct threefold manner of the one nature subsisting the three personed way of being the one God. Now, isn't this just Sabellianism? You can imagine someone saying that, like, aren't you sneaking in modalism? Um, And the answer is no, because modalism does not believe that there is a real distinction of persons in God. They think that the distinction between the father and son and between the son and the spirit um, and the spirit and the father are odd extra distinctions. In other words, the son is an historical manifestation of the father. So is the spirit. These are real. They are distinct from the father only as odd extra manifestations. There is no odd intra real distinction in modalism, but there is in Trinitarian orthodoxy. All right. So what should so back to this? But simplicity, you know, it's still there kind of dogging you saying, well, how can the persons be really distinct if all that is in God is God? And yet the father is not the son is not the spirit. Um, then what constitutes this is not, and how is this is not a multiplication of beings or a division of the one being? Like, how is it not? Uh, And the answer comes down to this. um, What what constitutes the is not of the persons vis-a-vis each other? It's not that they, it's it's not an is not vis-a-vis the divine nature. They are the divine nature, the self-same divine nature. What they aren't is each other. Now we have to ask the question, what accounts for their alterity? What accounts for the is not like that? There has to be something. And I would, I would actually, before I like kind of run down that path, if we can, before we do though, I want to kind of come back to the whole attribute attribute distinction. If you're going to maintain against the broad Christian tradition that the attributes in God are really distinct from each other, then you're going to need to give an account of what what grounds that alterity. And if you're saying that it's the distinction and ratio in your mind that grounds it, you're a conceptualist. You're a conceptualist. You are reading real distinctions off of conceptual distinctions. Okay. By the way, that's not always unsafe. I mean, you can kind of like that kind of syncs up in the world of creatures. There is a kind of conceptual distinction and ontological distinction that corresponds to it. Like that's not crazy. Um, The question is whether that's a good way to think about God. And the question more fundamentally is, is it really a good idea to ground an assertion of real distinction based upon a conceptual distinction? And I think I think that that is not the case. So the question is, what ground, if you say the attributes of God are really distinct from each other, then you're going to have to answer the question, what accounts for the alterity of the attributes? I think it'll the lines of a lot of Christians who struggle with the attribute identity thesis. It's um, it's the distinction in ratio, which the classical tradition fully grants. We fully grant the distinction in ratio. What we don't grant is that we can read off of a distinction in ratio, a distinction in ray a distinction in the thing itself. Um, that would require, that would require an additional argument. Like I can, I, for creatures composed of parts, I could, we could supply those arguments. Um, 
you know, like, how do I know that wisdom isn't power? Because there are, there are wise men that lack the strength to implement it. And there are powerful men that are fools. So how do I know that they're really distinct in those men? Uh, because not just because the idea is distinct in my mind, but because I can see one of those things being without the other one being, in other words, I have a way to, I have a way to identify that my conceptual distinction corresponds to a real distinction in those cases. How would you do that with regard to, um, God, if he's simple, how could you even make that kind of argument? Um, so the question, so here's the thing, if you're going to say that there's an is not in God, like I'm going to say there is an is not among the persons uh, with regard to each other. Um, I'm not going to say that there's an is not among the attributes with regard to the attributes. There's a distinction. There's a distinction. There's a conceptual distinction in ratio, but not a real distinction in in re in the thing. Um, and the reason is because I don't have a mechanism to account for the alterity among the attributes and ratio won't do it. Distinction and ratio won't do the job. Um, even though so many nowadays are sort of trying to make it do the job. I think that's, I think that's a, a, a very bad way to go that the majority of the Christian tradition saw very clearly as a dead end. And I don't think that the modern advocates of it have quite perceived how dastardly of a dead end that will be. It will lead you back to multi-partedness without the name. That's yeah. what it will do. <laughs> So let's cut. So can we circle to the persons? Oh, please go for it. Okay. So then you have to say, well, but if there's a real distinction in God among the persons, what grounds it? And the answer historically and uniformly given is, <laughs> well, I want to say Wayne Grudem, notwithstanding, uh, is relations of or processions, yep. grounding relations of origin. Processions were ground, grounding relations of origin. The relations of the processions ground the relations. The relations constitute the real distinctions. Relation is a way of being other. Um, it's, it grounds an alterity. The challenge for the Christian tradition, and one that I think was maybe best met by Thomas Aquinas, but you'll find many, many Protestants who follow him uh, in, the, in the Reformational traditions, is with regard to why relation actually does the job without introducing an accident into God. Because if you recall, if you kind of go all the way back to Aristotle's categories, um, which I would, I would recommend, by the way, I mean, if you haven't read Aristotle's categories, it's a very short work. It's just called categories. And it's a very small treatise by Aristotle. You can go download a nice translation free online and just read through it. It's, it's, it's quite a brilliant little piece of natural philosophy. And one of his nine categories of accidents is Passio, well, in Latin, we say, uh, passio, some sort of pathes, uh, I suppose, in Greek. Uh, but passio, uh, passion, uh, or I'm sorry, not passio, um, um, relatio, relation, is one of his nine categories. So is passion. But so you're like, well, wait a minute. How can, how can it be that relations of origin ground real distinctions in a simple God when a simple God isn't composed of substance and accidents? And Aristotle said that relations are accidents. Are you, are you kind of feeling that? Like, yeah. that feels yeah. like you're cheating. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to now at this late date and vote relations of origin as the explanation and still insist on simplicity seems like you're not connecting the dots somewhere. This is, and I'll give you my rough version of this, though it will only be rough. Aquinas, and I think this is part of his genius. And I, I know there's a little bit of like a chic Thomism going on right now where all, you know, all these evangelical Calvinistic reformed and, and even Lutheran scholastic types have, we've all, you know, I'm, maybe I'm part of it. I don't know. I, I hope I'm not 
you know, cheapening this whole movement, but like we've made a re we've had this sort of rediscovery of Aquinas and we are living in the golden age of beautiful Thomas translations and diglot editions with beautiful Latin facing. And the secondary literature is legion and some of it's very good. Some of it's kind of not, but some of it's really great. And we're kind of indulged. So, but I think there is, listen to the, for all that, I want to avoid kind of chic, hip and trendy Thomism and still at the same time be able to say there was a genius there. There was a genius, an insight, an insight that was submitting itself fun most fundamentally to the Holy Scriptures and contemplating, reflecting on what he was reading. And this is what Aquinas discovers with regard to relation, that because we can have because relation as relation as such, unlike the other eight accidents in Aristotle, the other eight accidents in Aristotle all relate to the subject as such. They qualify the subject somehow. But relation actually is does not so much point to the subject as it orders the subject to another relation means reference of one to another. In our thinking, we can talk about real relations uh, like my relationship to um, my relationship to my father is that of a son to a father. And it's a real relation in me. It's something that I have over and above being human. Okay. Even though I've always had it, it's still distinct from me. Um, it, it's an accidental relation I have, even though I've always had it. Uh, so we can have a real relation, but then we can also have a, um, we can also have a relation, a, a, a non-real relation, a relation in mind. And so we can say, um, we can say, um, James, uh, we can say this with regard to real relation, um, husband and father, those are real relations, but the relationship of those to each other is conceptual. There is no real relation of those to each other because a person could be a father and not be married. Uh, and a person could be married and not be a father. Um, and we, so we can distinguish, but there's not like that. There are like, or, or maybe a relation between like, um, or may, maybe I should go with something more like, um, a bachelor and an unmarried man. You know, those are those are two ways of kind of describing the same state of affairs. Um, but there's not a real distinction between those things in an unmarried man or a bachelor. You're not like, are you a bachelor? Yeah, I'm not married. Oh, that too, huh? <laughs> you know what I'm after? Right. Like, that's yeah. not that's not something else. <laughs> okay. So Thomas discovers that we can talk about purely conceptual distinctions and then real distinctions, but purely conceptual distinctions don't actually exist in substances as accidents. And so this is what Thomas brilliantly discovers. To inhere in a substance does not belong to the ratio of relation. The conceptuality of relation is reference of one to another. The fact of its inherence as a qualifying accident may or may not be the case, in which case then relation as such doesn't necessarily mean inherence in a subject. Wait, by the way, before we started recording, Blake, you did say you, you thought the weeds would be okay. If we kind of got in the weeds. Well, well, I, I was literally just thinking as I was looking at our extensive. I think we're in the weeds. With, I mean, at this point, we're, we're down. We're, in, we're down into the discussion. But I'm, I'm grateful because a couple of weeks ago we did have Dr. Barrett on talking about a lot of the kind of more high level concepts around it. So, like, I'm like, yeah, yeah let's go. Let's just. We're in the weeds. <laughs> we left the weeds behind. <laughs> we're like, which is good. By the way, these are these are not the bad. These are the good weeds. These, these are, are the good, good weeds, theology yeah. weeds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are whatever they want. are. Good theology weeds. That sounds like um, a, these are the ones you want. T-shirt. <laughs> I, I made that up. It doesn't sound. Maybe I think I think we shouldn't keep that. I think we got to find some some other uh, metaphor. Uh, so 
if relation as such does not mean inherence in a subject, which is how accidents relate to substances, it turns out that of Aristotle's nine categories of accidents, one of them could be predicated in a non-accidental way. We already do it with regard to conceptual distinct conceptual relations. Why not? Um, and so this is what he does. This is what he does. Relation means reference of one to another. It doesn't necessarily mean inherence in a, in a substance. Therefore, what we should say is that the relations of origin that distinguish the persons are not accidents that inhere in the persons or that inhere in the divine substance, but rather that the persons just are the relations themselves. The father just is the act of begetting the son. The son just is the act of proceeding filially from the father. The spirit just is, indulge my Westernism here, the act of proceeding spiratively from the father and son. Okay. And so it's not that it's not that the father has paternity. The father is the act of the father is the very act of begetting. The father is paternity itself subsisting. He's not someone who has it. He is the relation as such. The son isn't someone who has sonship. He is sonship itself. He's filiation subsisting from the father. Um, and the spirit is the spirit is that love or breath subsisting. Uh proceeding from the father and the son. The, re the reality is this actually, if we, can, if we can say that these relations establish a real distinction because of the processions that terminate odd intra within the one being of God, we actually have a mechanism, generation and spiration, by which to distinguish the three persons really from each other without introducing accidents, without partitioning the divine nature or multiplying divine beings. And what I want to say is it's really strange and deeply and biblically satisfying, yeah. even if odd. I'm okay yeah. with odd. I think we should be, I don't want to be odd for the sake of being odd, but you know, <laughs> it would be, I think I read, I read this in an article once. Um, it would be strange if God were not strange. Uh, there's a little, a little mystery and wonder. Uh, this is the Trinity. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised if if our theological reflections lead lead us to deep and unparalleled mystery. I don't want to say that excuses ours, um, and we need to be careful and sort of fastidious here, but we and think well through it. But I think that's the point. So back to like the attribute distinction and the person distinction. There is there is no the because the attributes are not subsisting relations. They're not distinct from each other because relations of origin are, in fact, the mechanism that constitutes the real alterity of the persons without a corollary mechanism among the attributes. We have no reason saying that the attributes subsist in real distinction from each other in God. And I think several who want to say uh, the attributes are really distinct. And, and I'm thinking of um, Jordan Barrett's work on the Trinity or on simplicity, where he points to the real distinction of the persons. And he wants to use the distinction of the persons as a way to correct and sort of modify the traditional simplicity doctrine by saying, I think we can I think we can dump the identity thesis because we don't have an identity thesis about the person persons. We don't say the father is the son is the spirit. That's modalism. And so we have a real distinction of persons. Why not a real distinction? of attributes, I think it doesn't follow because you're going to need a mechanism that establishes alterity without introducing multipartedness or accidents or, or multiplication of divine substances. And you're never going to get that except in relations.
But then if the attributes are really subsisting relations, then you have way more than three persons in God. If a person in God is just a subsisting relation and subsisting relation is the only thing that makes real distinctions and all the attributes are really distinct, then why not 333 divine persons? Yeah. Do you get where I'm like, yeah. I think the implications yeah. of this, I think, I think the tradition has, has done something for us with a lot of care and erudition, and they have thought through it over many years and carefully this sort of consensus that I just gave you in a rough and sort of a rough and dirty version of it. That's, that's the fruit of 1200 plus years of Christians working hard, fighting error, listening listening to each other, appropriating philosophy as a handmaiden of theology, helping them to give expression to these mysteries without dissolving the mysteries. And to think that you can just say, oh, that seems weird to me and kind of push it aside. I think we need to really, I don't want to be a slave to the past or just a kind of sentimentalist about the past. But at the same time, I think we should really tap the brakes and think that maybe the Christian tradition really thought through this very well. Um, and, And in fact, at least can only speak for myself, having spent some time with the tradition, I I find it deeply gratifying and biblical and and coherent, even if at once deeply mysterious. Hmm. Oh man, (laughs) there's so much good sauce there. Um, Wow. I have, Justin and I were, were messaging a little bit in there and saying how our minds are being blown and in all the right ways. Um, one thing you mentioned there right at the end, I, I believe the quote is August is Augustine. I'm going to paraphrase badly because that's just what we do on this the show. We butcher quotes, but um, <laughs> something to the effect of I, I uh, looking into the mystery of God, and I think it, it was specifically about the Trinity. I, it's like looking into the ocean, and I can see, I perceive the depths, but I cannot see to the bottom. I, I can't see to it. I can just recognize that it's big. Um, and yeah. and I think what you've highlighted through this and it, and it's something that I've seen people and you, you talked about it at length there but people criticize classical theism and simplicity of oh you're trying to over philosophize god and it's like no 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 we are all we're doing is seeing how big the ocean actually is uh we're not trying to put the ocean in our little fish tank we're trying to to see oh wow this is way bigger than i ever understood or imagined um so thank you for that that was all amazing All right, now it's time to do our giveaway. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to our friends at Reformation Heritage Books, we have not one, not two, but three copies of James Dolezal's book, All That Is In God, available for our listeners to enter to win. It's super exciting. Don't forget, you're going to want to go to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and enter by next Friday. And Justin... What else are people getting along with those books? Y'all, all three winners are going to receive, obviously, this copy of James Dolezal's All That Isn't God, but the grand prize winner will also receive a pair of our brand new Distilling Theology Canadian Glencairn glasses, perfect for enjoying bourbon and other American whiskeys. Well, amen. Our second place winner, however, will still get the book as well as a DT Rocks glass uh, exclusive in addition to the book. Also, third place you're still not a loser. You're still a winner. You also get the book as well as a DT quote mug featuring a quote from Herman Bobbink. This giveaway runs from Tuesday, August 30th through Friday, September the 9th. And the winners will be announced the next Distilling Theology episode. Yeah. You're not going to so, want to miss it. Uh, uh, head over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and see the goods. Yeah, guys. Get on it. Um, we've recommended this book ad nauseum 
for the last three years, and uh, <laughs> Reformation Heritage was kind enough to provide us those three copies so that we can get this good theology in the hands of more of our listeners. There is a whole lot to unpack here, obviously, <laughs> a tremendous amount mm-hmm. to unpack. Um, and yet it's 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 in many ways kind of uh, funny because we're talking about simplicity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And it's right. incredibly complex, but but also beautifully simple. Um, so if if folks wanted to, if if I'm imagining, like myself, for example, my appetite has been uh, drenched here. Um, if, if we've wet anybody's appetite, if you could point them to maybe some resources uh, to jump in and to, and to dive in, what might you recommend as far as anybody from the layman all the way up to the, you know, the the extensive theologian, where they might go to to study this? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of in terms of kind of a nice entry point for an interested layman, uh, two books recently by Matthew Barrett uh, would be, I think, nice kind of, I don't want to say zero level entry, but um, it's he's not going to put you in. The, I, I, I tend to go right for the 12 foot end of the pool and just throw them in. Um, <laughs> and so Matthew, Matthew's a nicer uh, swim teacher, uh, I think. <laughs> so his two books, uh, I, I would recommend none greater. Uh, is his book on divine attributes. And, oh, look, it's almost like we queued this up and planned it, but I assure you we did not because you were holding them up. And also <laughs> simply Trinity. Um, and what Matthew is, a, Matthew is a, a good synthesizer of the broad sort of Orthodox Christian tradition. Uh, and so I think those are kind of a nice way in. Uh, if you want to take, uh, if you want to kind of get at some of this polemically, uh, the uh, the four, four Views book on divine impassibility that I did with IVP Academic, um, I write the divine impassibility chapter, and then I've got three guys kind of coming from different angles or completely opposed to it uh, in there as well. That that will kind of let you see it kind of play out in in kind of modern polemics among Protestants. Uh, that would be that would be one way to kind of get in on the inside of that conversation. And also, that's like a summary of impassibility that I've written there. So it's not it's not, it's not kind of a book length. But uh, if you want also a nice pr- Primer on something like impassibility. Uh, Samuel Renahan has a book called God Without Passions, a primer. That's his, that's his kind of, that is a zero entry level kind of started as Sunday school classes in his church. Um, I would recommend that one as well. There are, there are other works though that people should get to. Um, I think in terms of just the metaphysical stuff, the, the kind of, if you're not familiar with metaphysics, you're not even sure it's real. Or when you think metaphysics, you think that weird section of the bookstore, um, where they also have like crystals and dolphins, you know what I mean? Like they put it over there with all the total fantasy stuff. Um, if you're like, well, is this even a way to talk coherently? And what does this mean? I would warmly recommend Edward Fazer's little book, Fazer's F-E-S-E-R. Edward Fazer's little book called Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. Um, inexpensive, very well written by a college professor who has real skills at communication, but is all a top-notch thinker. So I would um, I would recommend Edward Fazer's little book, Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, as kind of a entry level, just into, this is what I love about it. I mean, he's a Roman Catholic contemporary writing, writing as an intro to, to Aquinas, but what you're, what he actually does is he, for Protestants, you should be interested because he's actually giving you kind of a, a little introduction to the normative thought world of the 17th century that would have been typical of our tradition 300 plus years ago. So I like, I like Phaser as a kind of modern introduction to an old world that deserves, uh, you know, a second lease on life now. 
Yeah. Um, so those will be kind of entry, entry level. Um, I think if you want to kind of go up from there, especially Protestants who are interested, though, I mean, arguably it's not a Protestant doctrine. Divine simplicity is, well, not even arguably, it's not. It's just a Christian doctrine that the Protestants very wisely held on to. Right. Uh, you could read something like Herman Bovink, uh, and I, I, uh, Blake, because I'm because we're on a screen for listeners. They don't see this, but for yeah. ones who are watching, they do. It's like you, it's like you queued up the book recommendations behind yeah. you. <laughs> Volume two of Herman Bovink's yeah. Reform Dogmatics uh, is really very good, especially in the divine attributes and on divine simplicity. Especially, he's very clear-headed and uh, articulate on the doctrine and. It's a nice English translation. If you want to dig a little deeper into the Reformed tradition, I would recommend the first volume of three of Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Turretin's a 17th century Reformed professor teaching in Geneva, Switzerland. He's going to take you into his, his language is going to be a little bit more specifically scholastic. Um, and it's going to sound more medieval and perhaps even than Bovink's language does, uh, but also like has all the wonderful exactness of right. that period. So I would recommend volume two of Herman Bovink's Reform Dogmatics. And I can't resist. I will just say at a certain point, this was in my own, my own journey. At a certain point, you are just going to have to begin to read some Aquinas. Yeah. Because this is what this is what John Gill, a Baptist, is reading and agreeing with. This is what uh, this is what John Owen, uh, one of the great Puritans, oh, yeah. is reading. He's reading the Summa Theologiae. He's reading the Summa Contra Gentilis of Aquinas. Those are available in free translations online or in beautiful editions, uh, uh, published editions. If you need the, if you're a tactile uh, learner and you need it on the page and not in the pixels, um, but at a certain point, like you're going to have to make your way into Aquinas, because that really is so much the thought world of the 17th century Protestants who gave us many of our even still favorite reform confessions. So, but I, I'm, I know some people say, well, I'm going to go straight to Aquinas. I speaking for myself, um, start with phaser and kind of baby step your way to Aquinas would be my advice. Um, yeah. But anyway, those are a few uh, that come to mind. Those are great. And also, guys, um, pick up All That Is In God by James Dolezal. I've I've read it and reread it and listened to the audiobook multiple times. Um, this this episode is a good little tasting uh, of the kind <laughs> of content you'll expect. I think I think in many ways the book is so focused and you your chapters are really concise. Um, so it it doesn't get quite as far in the weeds in some ways as we got tonight, which is which is wonderful. And, and in other ways, though, you cover a lot of ground in a very little book. I'm, I was actually shocked when I finally got the the physical paperback how small the actual book was compared to the content that you, that you managed to pack in there. And I also picked up more recently and haven't gotten all the way through it, God Without Parts, um, Divine Simplicity, and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness, which on the front of it, there's this cover, which again, Patreon can see. No one else can see it yet, though, of uh, the prism with the white light coming in. Uh, on the one side and the multicolored, multi-parted lights apparently 
coming through the other side. And maybe we, we get into that in the bonus questions. I know. Yeah, I uh, used that analogy the other day talking to someone. It's a great. Listen, for, for listeners who can't see, all you need to do is think Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, kind of a <laughs> kind of a little riff off of that. And uh, so which good. is a favorite, yeah, a favorite analogy of the fathers and medievals and of the Puritans of the refraction of light being the way in which we think about God as as sort of refractedly and multipartedly, even though he's not that in himself. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And uh, guys, if you have enjoyed this and you're like, hey, wait a second, uh, I got lost 15 minutes in. Mom, come pick me up. I'm scared. Uh, I'm just kidding. You guys are wonderful. I felt that way a, a few times, which was great. I love it. Uh, we do have a couple episodes where we we broke into some of this stuff in much more zero yes. level, right? So so DT episodes 21, 22, and 23, we introduced the, the concepts present in our doctrine of God. Uh, and then in the 70s, we, uh, I think 70, 70 71 through 75, 70s. we talk about uh, <laughs> uh, theology proper, particularly 73 with Sam Renahan on impassibility. And then a little a little divergent, but but very much a, a antecedent doctrine, I might say, in, in inseparable operations with Adonis Vidu as far as a, a biblical theological framework um, that points us in the direction of the unity of God. So I would definitely commend those. Uh, also, James was on uh, an episode of Christ the Center put out by Reformed Forum a couple years ago. And I think you and Camden Lane really got into the meat of some of this stuff. And some of my questions were actually addressing some of the things that you guys talked about in that episode as far as contemporary divergence from the doctrine, particularly in the form of uh, evangelical Calvinists like Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, who you mentioned, or, or John Frame and Scott Oliphant. So if you guys want to get more into that, go check out that episode of Christ the Center because they really got after it in a, in a biblical and gracious way, speaking you know to, to brothers in the faith about significant errors. So that's that for that. James, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for uh, your labor really in this, in this area over all these yeah. years. I know you've been digging into this for many years now and continuing to fight the good fight and uh, and helping us to see the immensity, the greatness, the self-existence of our of our triune God. So thank you for your service to the church by, by bringing these things back into the spotlight and, and being among those who are really standing up for our, our tradition in big ways. Well, Justin and Blake, thank you for having me on and for your kind words. So really, really glad to be here and uh, thrilled to talk about this uh, any chance I get. That's awesome. And guys, if you want more really high quality theological content, if, if you're enjoying this kind of show, go check out our friends in the Society of Reformed Podcasters uh, over at reformedpodcasts.com. There's some really great content there, great shows, whole range of experiences, of lay level, of pastors and theologians, uh, people with all different backgrounds and I think you'd really be edified if you head over there. So be sure to check that out. And Justin, if people want more Distilling Theology, if they want to hear the extended conversation, the full uncut barrel proof conversation uh, that we have with James, uh, where can they go to get that good sauce? Yeah, guys, if you want to be part of our intimate, immediate family, join us at patreon.com slash distilling theology uh, for four ninety nine a month. Uh, you can be part of the intimate, close group of DT family members, uh, and you'll get all kinds of perks. You'll get all of this extra bonus content. You'll get the video content unedited, raw. You'll get to see our beautiful faces, and you'll get discounts in our store, among other things, um, as well as exclusive content. And at $14.99 a month, you'll get uh, some extra stuff 
So, guys, check us out. Uh, you just go to stillingtheology.com. You got links to everything right at stillingtheology.com. Um, also, you can join our extended family on our social media. Nice. Uh, head on over to uh, facebook.com slash distillingtheology, uh, and you can uh, join our group. You can like our page. Uh, and boy, it really somehow still is the most sage stage reformed Facebook group on the reformed internet. Uh, and you can hold us to it. You can hold us to that. Uh, and also Instagram, of course, at Distilling Theology. Uh, Twitter, at Distilling Tea, uh, where we get guests and wreck heretics. Uh, it's a good time over there. Um, <laughs> guys, uh, we appreciate you. And uh, smash that like button, hit subscribe. <laughs> so, James, thank you again. This was such a pleasure. Guys, uh, if you're like me, you're probably going to have to listen to this episode a couple times. Um, but get in the Facebook discussion group. Get after it. We'd love to talk to you about it and uh, continue this conversation because it's so important. The church has been having it for literally thousands of years. And let's just get in there. So, friends, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. If you guys are enjoying this, you're going to really enjoy the full-length conversation. So enjoy the sneak preview of that full episode, which is available exclusively at patreon.com slash distillingtheology. This is a strange new phenomenon among reform types where suddenly if it's Roman Catholic, it's out of bounds. That just, there's nothing about the first 200 years of reformational Christianity, whether Lutheran or reformed, that, that really breathes that kind of sectarian spirit. When, when John Owen needs to respond to the Sassinians, who were the biblicist heretics of his day, yeah. He appeals first on divine. He, he argues with that they don't believe in divine simplicity. And then he appeals for argument to Thomas Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentilis. This is in the you can find this in the works from Banner of Truth um, in his in his works against the Sassinians. And then he appeals to Cardinal Cayetan, uh, Thomas de Vio, who is the cardinal who was deployed by the pope to go and elicit a recantation from Luther. So, ooh, he's a bad guy. You know, in our history of the Reformation, uh, Cardinal Cayetan is one of the is one of the servants of the Antichrist, you know. Um, but he's also a Dominican friar who writes amazing commentaries on Thomas Aquinas. And um, John Owen read those commentaries, apparently liked them, and quoted Cayetan's commentaries against the Sassinians. And here's what I want to add. Didn't even say sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, there's yeah. that. Like when, yeah. And the thing is, because no one questions whether he's uh, whether he's uh, in communion with the Pope of Rome. That's not a question right? like that. How serious like how unserious are you if when Aquinas or when when Owen cites Cayetan, you wonder if he might be drifting toward Rome? <laughs> his record, his churchmanship should speak for itself. Yeah. But also he was not remiss to make common cause with Catholics old and contemporary to him when what they were speaking was true and orthodox Christianity. And we need yeah. to be very careful. Roman Catholics, the Reformation was not about the Trinity. It was not about divine attributes. Um, it was not about hypostatic union. Uh, it was not about even the doc of the doctrine of the incarnation or of um, the death and resurrection and second coming. And Catholics believed all these things on the authority of Holy Scripture at the time of the Reformation. And the re reformers and those who followed them very wisely maintained that cause.